Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. <laughs> uh, Daryl, I got a hold of you on Twitter. Uh, mm -hmm. I've seen your tweets. I've been a big fan of you. Uh, and you have a very interesting life. You've had a very many, many <laughs> lived experiences. Um, so first of all, let's start with what you're doing right now, and then we'll get into a little bit more of your biography. Uh, yeah. You are currently a nursing PhD student, is that correct? That is correct. University of Missouri. University of Missouri. So uh, nursing, why nursing? Um, you know, I had applied to several uh, traditional public health programs, and the one that I really wanted to attend at Loma Linda, great program, but they didn't offer any sort of fellowships, scholarships, or anything like that. So I would have been looking at 99000 in student loans. And so I said, that's totally a no-go for me. So started doing some more searching around and found out about the University of Missouri. And they're very, their nursing program is very different than some of the other programs that I may have looked at. Um, they're very interdisciplinary, meaning that they create space for people who don't have that nursing background. So my background is pharmacology and public health. Um, they're really training people to be healthcare researchers in whatever area that you want to go into. So none of my coursework has actually been nursing related, if that makes sense. Everything that I've taken has been statistics and research methods and public health theory and things like that. But the main thing about the program is it's being funded. So I pay maybe $500 out of pocket each semester. I get a tuition waiver for nine to 12 credits and then a little bit of money for a stipend. Okay, wait a minute. So it's being funded by who or by well, what? Well, we we've got several different funding mechanisms. So my particular fellowship, the Sinclair Fellowship, comes from a family who donated this money to the school. They set this, uh, I guess they set this fund up for uh, students like myself who need the funding. But we also have students who are receiving NIH money like the T32 Fellowship. And I think at one point in time, we had students who were on the McNair Fellowship. So there's just different different streams uh, that the school has to fund students. Okay, that's really cool. And yeah. you mentioned, um, I mean, I see this a lot on your Twitter uh, feed is that I see the term non-traditional student. Mm -hmm. uh, can you explain to us a little bit? What exactly does that mean? It means I'm an old man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, I'm actually uh, 48 years old. Um, as you said, I, I haven't had a traditional path uh, to get to this point. I actually graduated from high school in 1989 and uh, started college at Texas Southern University. But my parents were going through a pretty rough divorce. Plus, I was 17 years old, didn't have any clue about what I really wanted to do with my life. My dad wanted me to go to pharmacy school. I ended up meeting a girl who was 24 at the time. So you can imagine how that ended up going. I um, essentially fell out of class, even got an F in weightlifting, of all things. And so, uh, yeah, I'm so the rest of the world's going to hear about that. But um, anyway, you know, my dad was like, you know, you need to grow up. You need to be a man. So you can't come home. You can sleep under a bridge, get an apartment, try to get yourself back into school, whatever you've got to do, but you can't come home. So, you know, I bumped around for a little while, tried the apartment thing, tried looking for little jobs, couldn't uh, uh, make that work. So I ended up enlisting in the Army. And when I was in the Army, I had the chance to deliver a baby during my combat medic training. And from that point on, I was sold on doing something in healthcare or public health. I didn't necessarily know which at that time, but it, it was a really formative experience for my life. 
Um, I also developed a lot of confidence in my academic abilities, um, just a lot of confidence, period. Basically, I grew up in the Army. And so when I was released from active duty, um, came back into the civilian world, you know, I, I worked a series of jobs, you know, certified nursing assistant, EMT paramedic, pharmacy tech, you know, just some things to sort of help me figure out what it was that I wanted to do with my life. And finally, in 2005, I decided to return to school for my undergrad studies. That's amazing. It's uh, it's interesting, right? Because like you said, you're, you were essentially confronted with a dilemma. You were essentially almost homeless in a way, right? I mean, you, right. you had to figure things out for yourself. Uh, what exactly made you decide to join the military? There wasn't much more <laughs> that I could do. I mean, I was, I was working a job at Fiesta Grocery Store. Now, just, again, just to tell you how many years ago this was, minimum wage was like $4.25 an hour or something like that. So, you know, working full time, I was literally bringing home, you know, maybe 80 or 90 bucks a week. And it wasn't enough to live on. And so when I enlisted in the military, I didn't even want, I, at that time, I wasn't even thinking about combat medicine or that was the job that I eventually did. But I wasn't thinking anything about that. I was just like, I need to get someplace stable so I can have food and some shelter and some clothing. And so um, I spoke with a Navy recruiter. I did so well on the ASVAB exam that they wanted to send me to nuclear propulsion school. But the idea of being on submarines really frightened me. Um, so I went and spoke with an air force recruiter and they said, well, you don't meet the weight cutoff. So finally I saw an army recruiter and he's like, well, we have positions in combat medicine or culinary. And I said, well, I don't want to be a cook. Combat medicine sounds kind of cool. So I'll do that. And that's how that, that's how that worked out. Wow. I've actually never spoken with a, a U.S. Army vet, so this is kind of really fascinating for me because it's a world I'm completely not familiar with. Um, how long were you in the military? Almost twenty years. Twenty years, and you were a combat vet the whole. Uh, sorry, a, a combat medic uh, the whole, the whole time. Medic. Yep. So I started off started off in the army, and then when I was discharged from active duty, enlisted in the reserves, discharged from the reserves, and enlisted in the Air Force National Guard. And that entire time, I was a medic. Wow. Did you, did you serve overseas? Did you do any active duty? Uh, the first Gulf War, yes. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Do you want mm -hmm. to talk about that or is that off limits? Well, no, I mean, it was mainly for what I did. It was a lot of sitting around in the dirt <laughs> waiting for something to happen. Um, and of course, you know, I was, I was still a young man at that time. So, I mean, it was scary. Um, you know, I have relatives who, you know, have, have served in the military, who have served in combat, a lot of friends, obviously a lot of my, um, you know, commanding officers and things like that who had served in combat. Anybody who tells you that they're not afraid, you know, when they're in that sort of situation is lying to you. Um, so it was a very scary time, but the war didn't go the way that people projected. Um, as I recall, uh, people were projecting you know, really, really high casualties. They projected that the Iraqi army was going to put up, you know, one hell of a fight. And I think it ended up being, what, a little over 100 hours or something like that. Um, you know, we we saw a lot of, you know, bombed out Iraqi positions. And so some of those images, some of those those smells and things like that will stick with me forever. But, you know, luckily, things didn't go the way that, that uh, we had anticipated. 
Okay. There's a book by uh, Sebastian Younger called uh, Tribe. It's mm-hmm. a it's a book about have you read it? No, I haven't heard of that. Okay, yeah, it's about uh it's about how um how troops uh form essentially a bond, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's it's interesting because I speak to a few people on this podcast who work in the arts and they they form a bond with their film crew or they form a bond with their artistic dance crew or whatever. And then they leave, they're away, and then they're together and they're super close. And then they come back home and they have to go their separate ways. I'm just curious, um, just since we're on this topic, did you have a very close bond with your troops? Oh, absolutely. You know, there are, you know, some of the names I don't remember, but most of the names I do. Um, One guy in particular, his name was Robert McMullins. Uh, we went through basic training together and unfortunately we had to go our separate ways after basic training, but we stayed in touch for a number of years after that. And it was, it was interesting. Our relationship was interesting, especially in light of sort of the things that are happening in America now with a lot of the racial unrest and and things like that. Um, Robert was from Alabama, um, me from Texas. We both grew up at a time where, uh, pretty much it was either black people or white people, right? For example, the town that that I grew up in, I was one of, what, gosh, there were maybe six or seven African-Americans in my high school, 1,500 white kids. And that was like my whole conception of race. It was a pretty conservative town, pretty conservative part of Texas. Um, you know, there were definitely some, some issues of race uh, that occurred in high school. And so that really sort of shaped uh, my view of the world and shape my view of white people going into the military. And Robert's experience was more or less the same coming out of Alabama. And so we got to basic training. We didn't really like each other. And again, it, but we I don't think that either of us could have really put a finger on why we didn't like each other. It was just sort of this thing that was, was shaped by where we grew up at. And I remember our drill sergeant, you know, saying, you know, I, I think this was maybe third week of basic training. We had just both been screwing up, you know, horribly. And he said, well, the way it's going to work from here on out, if one of you gets in trouble for anything, you're both in trouble and you're both going to get punished for that. <laughs> and so um, he sort of, I guess, forced us <laughs> into this marriage where, where you know, we had to, to learn to work together to, um, you know, get our, 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 our task completed. But what really grew out of that was a friendship. So I remember one night uh, coming into our squad bay and Robert was sitting on his bed uh, crying. And my first thought is, you know, what is this big old MF doing, you know, crying? You know, he was a big guy like me. <laughs> and so, but at that moment, something else occurred to me. I said, well, maybe something's happened. Be a human and go sit down next to him and, and, and ask him what, what happened. And so what had happened, he had gotten a, girl, a letter from his girlfriend, one of the so-called Dear John letters, you know, saying she broke up with him, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he just laid his head on my shoulder and cried. And I'm just sitting there. I put my arm around him. And so you imagine these two guys, you know, well over six feet tall, you know, 250 pounds <laughs> holding each other. But from that, our friendship blossomed. And, and you know, we, and now that I think about it, it was just, I don't know, it was just stupid that you know we had all of these original ideas of each other that were based on race and false assumptions and all of this other foolishness. Yeah, this is what's interesting about being in close contact with people that you don't necessarily choose to be in close contact with, whether mm-hmm. it's in the military mm-hmm. or in the arts or whatever. Right, um, right. So 
so then you you leave the military um and I, I want to talk about your dad a little bit here just because he mm-hmm. he was a was he a pharmacist is that what he did yeah. for a living yeah, so he wanted you he wanted you to be a copy of him in a way well i I don't know that it was so much that he wanted me to be a copy of him as it was it was what he knew and okay. I mean pharmacy you know my dad was one of the few people in our town that uh, was able to continue making a living when the recessions and all of the economic downturn of the 80s hit. Um, Not only was he able to make a living, you know, he was able to provide a very good living for the family. You know, pharmacy is a, is a excellent uh, uh, profession. It's just that I wasn't interested in it, but dad just sort of felt like, look, I know that if you go into pharmacy, you'll always be able to have a job. You'll always be able to be paid well, stable career. So this is why you should do pharmacy. I think that, you know, for my dad's generation, um, you know, not a lot of African-Americans went to college in the first place. So my dad was very blessed and very fortunate in that. But because of that, he wasn't exposed to the same, uh, what, how would I say this, the same sorts of things that I was exposed to, you know, in high school and and you know, after high school and things like that. And I would say that if, if dad had had greater exposure, you know, it's very likely that he would have, you know, taken a different stance on what I should major in. Right. So what kinds of things were you exposed to that, uh, that inspired you or what kind of, what, what exactly are you talking about specifically in this experience? Well, so when I was in high school, there was one teacher I had, his name was John Becker. Um, bless his heart. I, I don't know if he's still alive or not. He was in his forties then. But he was an awesome, awesome, awesome biology teacher, and he was an awesome mentor. You know, he was the only only high school teacher that I had who took me under his wing to, you know, mentor me and expose me to biology. I mean, that's where my whole life or my whole love of, of biology came up at. You know, he had this little raggedy microscope set up in our, our classroom, and he would get pond water, and we would look at all these little things, these really cool little things scooting about you know, in the Petri dish. And I was just uber fascinated by that. But my dad was like, how are you going to make a living looking at things under a microscope in a Petri dish? And again, I don't think that he had this concept of how broad of a field the sciences really are. You know, his, his, his exposure to the sciences was really very sort of limited to pharmacy, you know, pharmacology, pharmacognosy, you know, pharmacoepidemics and all these different sort of things here. Um, and so, again, if if he had maybe gone to a high school where he had had a teacher to take that sort of interest in him and to expose him to different worlds of biology or literature or arts or what have you, maybe he would have chosen something different, you know, in, in, in school. And, you know, maybe he would have, you know, wanted me to choose something different. Right. Is your dad still uh, alive? Today? Oh, yeah. My, yeah. my my old man, he is still alive and kick is still working as a pharmacist. So <laughs> dad is dad is 73. And I don't think that he's ever going to slow down. <laughs> has he uh, has he changed his mind on you? Or is he quite impressed? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and I, I think I think that dad is a, a living example of how we evolve as people. Right. So I can remember um, back in, I guess it was 96 through 97, I had moved back home to Houston. And I was living in a part of Houston, uh, Montrose. And the Montrose area 
it's um really lively uh lively area lively part of town um it tends to be the area uh, that people associate with the LGBT community in Houston, right? And so my dad was extremely uncomfortable to come and visit in that area because, again, he had all of these stereotypes about the LGBT community. And so I remember in 97, uh, my birthday that year, he pulled up in front of my apartment and I'm like, oh, Pop, you can come on into the, you know, come on in. He was like, no, nah, I'm feeling uncomfortable. Here's your gift. You know, so he leans out the, out the window of the car, <laughs> it gives me the gift and burns off. and now, you know, my dad says, I don't understand why I thought those sort of things, you know, why if these are just people like I'm, I'm a person, right? And so, you know, he's, he's evolved in a lot of ways in a lot of, a lot of areas. He he definitely isn't uh, as conservative as he was when I was growing up. Yeah, that's definitely a generational thing. I mean, I came out right. when I was 18, Right. Uh, you know, my, it, and it was a totally different time when I was 18. I'm 43 now. So mm -hmm. we're kind of in the same age range. Right, right. Um, and I, you know, grew up in a rural community. So definitely, and my parents have come around, you know, so it right. takes time sometimes. It takes exposure. Yeah. Exposure is really important, right? Well, exactly. You know, like my wife, uh, you know, her father, you know, was a gay black male. Um, unfortunately, he's passed away. But I think through hearing the stories of love that my wife, my wife had, for her father or has for her father. Um, I think that that has helped to open my dad's eyes and helps him to understand that, that, that people are just people. Shit. I'm just gonna say it like that. People are just people. Yep. Period. For sure. Can we, um, is it okay to actually talk a little bit about your, your wife's dad for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, he was a, he was a gay black male in right. Texas. No, actually Detroit. So. Uh, my wife is from, yeah, my wife is from Detroit. So my wife and I, we actually met on the internet on this uh, dating website back in 2006. And uh, I had the chance to meet her father. I really wish that I would have been able to know him longer than I did. Um, unfortunately, he passed away in November of that year, right around Thanksgiving. Um, Derek Anderson was his name. He was a, a notable HIV AIDS activist in the Detroit area. And I think maybe to, to say he was HIV, uh, HIV AIDS activist is probably limiting. Um, he was just really into human rights, period, in all ways. And um, <laughs> he, was just, he was just such a really, really good man. I think, unfortunately, what ended up killing him was ignorance and stigma. So uh, he suffered a small tear in his aorta. And when he got to the hospital, I guess that was the night of the 24th of November, um, the hospital was so concerned about the fact that he was HIV positive that they spent the next six or seven hours trying to transfer him to different facilities in the Detroit area. And when nobody could take him, they finally decided to do surgery, but it was too late. He you know, already lost so much blood. And so my wife had to make the decision to stop all uh, uh, treatment on him. Oh man, that just that breaks was, my heart. That was tough, but but and that that's sort of sort of one of the reasons why I want to go into medicine as well because unfortunately you see a lot of stigma and a lot of a lot of stereotypes in terms of the way that 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 we treat the LGBT population and women of color. And I mean, in fact, now that now that we're 
trying to have a child, you know, one of the things that my wife says to me almost on a weekly basis is, you know, Daryl, I'm scared to have a child because so many black women don't come out of L and D. They die. And a lot of it again is based on stereotypes, you know, doctors who maybe not they don't listen to their patients or, you know, they 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 have preconceived notions or preconceived ideas about their patients. I mean, one of the things that my wife and I have both noticed is that when we see a doctor now, my wife, you know, will tell the doctors, well, look, I'm a professor of medicine and public health at a local medical school, or I tell them I'm a PhD student planning to go to medical school, and they automatically treat us differently. But it shouldn't be that way. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was a bum off the street going to see my doctor, he should treat me with the same respect that he would treat a PhD student or a professor of medicine. He should right. listen to me and give me that same level of care that anybody else would get. Are there any uh, like numbers? Like, is is this a very common thing? Like, it, it, so can you like give me a, more of a scope of what the problem is or what you know? Because you said like your wife is scared of delivering in the hospital. I mean, I have, you know, I'm Canadian. I, I have very little experience with what it's like in, especially in the Southern U S. So mm-hmm. can you give me more of an example of like, what is it exactly? That's the the problem. How common is it? Um, you know, give me a, a bit more of a rundown on that. You know, I haven't seen any of the most recent numbers. Um, and you know, there's a lot of literature about this, uh, that's available though, but it's, what I what I will tell you from coursework and, and, and my readings, um, African American women have some of the poorest birth outcomes in the United States. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Not all of them are related to uh, structural uh, or systemic race racial issues. A lot of them are though. But I think that there's just a lot of factors that have come together, such as you know poverty, lack of education lack of access to medical care. So for example, here in the southern US, a lot of you a lot of the uh, southern states chose not to expand Medicaid uh, Medicare uh during the ACA uh, uh era. So a lot of people don't have access to adequate medical care. A lot of people don't know that they need to, you know, go in to see the doctor at regular intervals or different sorts of things like that. Um, when we when we talk about some of these stigma and stereotypes that doctors will sometimes hold against patients, there was a paper out of the University of Virginia a, a couple of years ago that talked about how um, a lot of medical students have this idea that African Americans don't feel pain the same way as white Americans, meaning we don't need as much pain relief because somehow our skin is thicker or we don't have as many nerve endings. I, I really don't know where those sort of beliefs come from, but they're, they're false beliefs that still persist, you know, in a lot of medical students to this day. And you can imagine how, if you carry this false belief with you into your clinical practice, you can see how that can influence the decisions you make about patient care. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you've probably heard about the experience that Serena Williams had when uh, she was giving birth. You know, she very nearly died. And um, I don't recall exactly what some of those articles said, but I, I believe it was a situation where her doctors weren't listening to her. She was saying, I'm not feeling well, something is wrong. And she finally found somebody to listen to her. Um, and I think people listen to her because of who she is, right? She's Serena Williams you know, one of the, the, one of the most dominant athletes in the world, if not the most dominant athlete in the world. So she has a voice. 
But what about those women who don't have a voice? Right. Who listen to know, it, it amazed me. I saw a tweet. Um, this must be, I don't know, maybe two months ago. Uh, a kid in England, uh, I think he was at Cambridge or Oxford, I don't remember, but he made a guide uh, for dermatology uh, mm-hmm. to, to more easily identify uh, dermatolo- dermatological conditions <laughs> on, 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 um, on black skin. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember looking at my partner, you know, my partner has a, a master's in, in, uh, in uh, African studies. And mm-hmm. she just looked at me and she said, how does this not already exist? Well, yeah. It's almost I like, mean, yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of those things that you just kind of look and you, you have a blank stare at each other. And you kind of go like, did this not already exist? You know? Unfor- I mean, I think about my combat medic training. I've, I've gone through some civilian EMT uh, courses. I've got medical textbooks here at the house. And rarely, very rarely, do you run across a picture in any of these books uh, with a person of color? And it, it sort of makes sense, right? That, you know, the way that a, a condition of the skin would appear in a person of color versus a white person would look different, but we're not trained. We don't, we don't use this broad, you know, uh, a selection of, of people to train on. You know, when I was, when I was working when I was working in a, a Texas Children's Hospital, I was an ER tech, and one of our nurses, bless her heart, she really loved to teach people. She told me then, she said, Daryl, doing an IV on a dark-skinned person is going to be very different than doing that IV on a white person, so I'm going to show you a little trick that's going to make it very easy for you. And so she took out her pen light and stuck it on the bottom of, of this uh, dark-skinned patient's hand, you know, who we need to start an IV on, turn the light on. And what that light did, it shone through the bottom of the hand and illuminated, you know, the veins and arteries at the top of the hand, hmm. right? And so just learning little tricks like that uh, uh, based on that, 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 that uh, patient's skin color, you know, makes it so much easier to be able to provide care and so forth. So it sounds like there could be um, perhaps a revision of uh, medical texts or a revision in medical training for people of color for, you know, little tips and tricks like that would be extra valuable in mm-hmm. medical training. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, um, but, you know, there's, there's so much that goes into medical training. I think one of the things that we would have to, cons- have to consider is, okay, well, where can we fit this stuff in? So in mm-hmm. other words, you know, there's so much in the way of biomedical sciences, right? You know, you take X number of hours of anatomy and so many hours of biochemistry and genetics and all these different things. And I'm sure that if we sat here between the two of us, we could probably think of 50 more things that need to be in medical curricula. But again, where do you find the space? Do you, are, you, are you willing to add an extra year or two to medical school? Or are you willing to say, we need to cut down on the biomedical sciences to add some of these other things? And you know, I don't. I don't know what the answer would be, honestly. Yeah, that's an an interesting kind of almost counter argument, right? Because not a counter argument, but you're right. I mean, there's so much to teach. There's only so much time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that mm-hmm. is very interesting. Um, the reason why uh, that I'm especially interested in in your in your research is because uh, I'm just going to read it off from my piece of paper here. But mm-hmm. you are specifically researching HIV and PrEP. Uh, prescribing practices for African-Americans in the U.S. And mm-hmm. so now now I'm curious, now that I know a little bit more about you, about, um, about your wife's dad, is this, a, is this personal? Uh, is this something that really 
was inspired by by your wife's dad? Um, he's definitely part of uh, why I'm doing this. Before his death, uh, he wanted to establish a website where he could provide you know all sorts of resources and tips and help you know to other you know gay black males. And he and I were going to work on that website together. And unfortunately, you know, he passed before we had the chance to. But even before I met Derek, uh, you know, I had you know several experiences that helped to inform my whole interest in HIV/AIDS work and so forth. So I uh, volunteered one time for a social service organization in Houston uh, that served the needs of uh, LGBT individuals who were HIV positive. And what I actually did uh, when we had individuals who were uh, who had AIDS and they were in the final stages of their life, I would go to just sit with them, hold their hand, just comfort them or what have you, you know, as they made their transition. And, you know, that made a big impact on me because at that time there were so many people who were being disowned by their families and things like that. And, you know, I just felt like no one should ever die alone. Right. Mm -hmm. So there was that. And then one of my buddies uh, from the army, um, I knew he was gay from the time that we were in our combat medic training together, but he was a damn good soldier and a really good friend, but his family cut him off and he eventually uh, contracted HIV, um, developed AIDS. And because his family cut him off, he couldn't go back home to Guam where he was from, you know, to spend uh, his final days. So he came to live with me. This was in 1999. So he came to live with me and he spent the last you know six or seven months of his life living with me. And so, again, you know, I just feel like nobody should ever die alone. And then eventually, you know, my thoughts started to transition to nobody should die from this period. Right. And Mm -hmm. certainly nobody should be judged, you know, because of, you know, sexual orientation, race, religion, whatever the hell, you know, all these isms that we tend to judge people like judge people by. So it's just sort of all these things that came together to uh, influence you know, my interest in this uh, particular line of research. Yeah, you're, um, you have a big heart, don't you? Yeah, I love people. I love people. Mm-hmm. Um, what exactly have you found in your, in your studies so far? So it's prescribing practices for African Americans in the U.S. That's a, that's a formal way of saying it. What have you learned right. so far? Are there, are there issues with prescribing pr- practices? Are there improvements that should be made? There's definitely issues. Um, and the, the, the neat thing about doing a dissertation is that it gives me the chance to sort of see where the gaps are. And what I am discovering is that PrEP prescribing is really uneven across the nation. So here in the South, we potentially have the greatest or the highest PrEP need really for all races, but particularly for African-Americans, yet PrEP prescribing is the lowest here. So, but if you compare us to a place like, say, the the Northeast, you know, New York City, Philadelphia, you know, those kind of cities, you know, they do a lot better job of prescribing prep there. Why I'm is that? Gonna, sorry, Daryl, I'm just going to stop mm-hmm. you for one second. Can yeah. we just tell people what prep is? Yeah, yeah. So prep stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, there are two medications uh, that are are prescribed for prep. So. Uh, Truvada, which was approved in 2012, I believe, and Discovoy, which was uh, prescribed in 2019. And so the idea behind PrEP is that if you are going to have unprotected sex, um, you can take a pill a day, basically, 
and that uh, cuts down on your risk of contracting HIV. And so the studies that I've seen uh, suggest that, that uh, Truvada and Discovoy can reduce your risk of contracting HIV by up to 99% as long as you take it as directed. Um, there are some side effects uh, attributable, attributable to uh, Truvada and Discovoy, but they're mild, particularly as compared to the idea that you could contract HIV, right? So um, one of the issues that, that we see with Truvada and Discovoy is that these can be potentially costly medications. Some of the literature that I've seen suggests that a year's worth of medication for somebody who doesn't have any sort of health insurance could be anywhere between fourteen to twenty thousand uh, dollars, fourteen thousand to twenty thousand uh, dollars for that year. So that is definitely a potential issue that we're we we need to troubleshoot. But what I am really interested in is why is it that primary care providers, particularly here in the South, um, aren't prescribing? So is it a lack of knowledge on the part of the primary care provider? Is it a, a issue of stigma on the part of the primary care provider? Um, is it issues pertaining to the time that it takes to do HIV counseling and testing to patients before you even get to, you know, prescribe, you know, uh, uh, the prep or what have you? Um, I know that in general, a lot of physicians don't even like to talk about sexual health with their patients. I'm 48 years old, and I've never, never had a physician to ask me, you know, well, can you tell me about your sexual habits or your sexual history? You know, I've mm -hmm. never had a physician to say, you know, would you like prep? You know, when I'm coming into your office, you don't know if I'm married. You don't know if I have multiple sex partners or if I'm having unprotected sex or if I'm an IV drug user or what have you. So you need to be assessing every patient, you know, for their sexual health. But I've never had a physician to do that. And that's something that we see, you know, that's fairly common. Yeah, and, and it's, it's it's definitely fairly common in Canada as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I myself have. <laughs> it's funny because my doctor, who's I mean, bless him, because he's he's actually a really sweet man, mm -hmm. um, but frequently has said, "Oh, you know, because I, you know, STI testing is important for everyone. It's something that we should all do uh, regularly." Um, and uh, he's like, "Well, but you're a lesbian. Why do you need an STI test?" <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So, right. Well, that I mean, that, that's a perfect case in play again stereotypes and making assumptions about people. Right, exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh so so you are doing this study. Um when do you when do you think you'll be done your 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 PhD? Lord willing, uh 2021, hopefully by May. So my funding runs out in May of 2020. Uh -huh. so if I don't if I don't want to pay out of pocket, I better be done. Um and and actually Last week, I submitted uh, my first three chapters of my dissertation to my committee chair. Uh, those first three chapters comprise the uh, proposal, dissertation proposal. Um, she should have some feedback for me by tomorrow. Um, my wife is going to help me to do the edits. I'll send that back to her. And then from there, she'll send it out to the committee. I'll have my uh, proposal defense, submit everything to the IRB, and then hopefully maybe by mid-October to the end of October, I'll be able to start uh, data collection. So I'll be doing a cross-sectional study, so designing a survey in Qualtrics and uh, delivering that across social media. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to uh, maybe piggyback off of some of the virtual conferences, like, you know, have a link to my survey on the virtual conference page. 
where uh, providers can go and take the survey. Um, I've got some providers here in Texas uh, who have already agreed to take the survey. So um, I think, fingers crossed, I think that I should have a reasonably uh, easy time, straightforward time collecting the data. Uh, What kind of stuff are you looking for in that kind of survey? So, you know, I'm going to be assessing HIV stigma. So I've I've got a a panel of questions that ask uh, about attitudes, you know, towards, you know, IV drug users, LGBT patients, you know, homeless patients, those sort of things. I'll be assessing knowledge. You know, what do they know about uh, PrEP? Have they ever been exposed to any sort of training in PrEP? Um, How comfortable do they feel with um, assessing a patient for PrEP needs? Um, then I'll, I think I've got four or five questions where I'm asking sort of their overall HIV AIDS uh, knowledge as well. And so what I want to do is uh, see if there are any associations between a provider's personal uh, factors. So things like their age, where they practice at, um, HIV stigma attitudes, uh, sexual orientation, gender, race, and their uh, professional. Uh, factors. So things like, are they a physician versus a nurse practitioner versus a PA? Um, What type of uh, primary care uh, provider they are? So that would be like family medicine, internal medicine, OB-GYN. What was the other category I'm looking at? Family, internal, OB-GYN. I think those are the only three I'm looking at. Um, And just see if there's any associations uh, between all those factors and whether or not they're actually going to be prescribing PrEP. And then I also want to know uh, what stage they're at in terms of making a decision to either prescribe or not prescribe. So there is a, a particular model that we use uh, in public health called the precaution adoption process model, right? It's a, a stage of change model with seven different stages. And each one of those stages corresponds to where an individual uh, is going to be in their decision to either adopt a particular behavior or not adopt a particular behavior. And this could be important in the context of my study because let's just say if we have a lot of research participants who say, you know what, I'm thinking about prescribing PrEP, but I'm unsure, well, that will allow us to devise an intervention to target people at that very specific uh, stage to push them over the hump to prescribing, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, that's, so that's, that's broadly how I've, I've conceptualized my uh, dissertation study though. It sounds really fascinating. Like, I can't wait to actually be able to, to hear what the results show. Man, I, I dream about it all the time. It's, it's like all we talk about in my household now. So. <laughs> yeah. Did you say earlier that your, your wife is also an academic? Yeah, yeah. So she actually works for A.T. Steele University School of Osteopathic Medicine in Arizona. She teaches in the DOMPH program. Um, and she's also the director of community-oriented primary care. So she uh, is definitely a public health ally, um, you know, done a lot of work in HIV AIDS, uh, particularly with the LGBT community. Um, prior to starting at AT Steel, uh, she was a clinical assistant professor at Arizona State University in the community health uh, program as well. So, so both, essentially, both are jack of all well, trades. Yeah, I was going to say the trailer household pretty much talks medicine all the time, don't they? Uh, yeah, yeah. Medicine and medicine and smoothies and food. <laughs> <laughs> smoothies? What are you talking yeah, about? My, got, my, wife, actual- my wife loves making these weird smoothies. So she like 
it'll be like bananas and strawberries and kale and collard greens or whatever whatever we've got in the fridge so it's it's sort of the running joke i mean she her smoothies are really good but she never makes the same smoothie twice and so i've been on her for years to actually write the recipes down because my my palate isn't as broad as hers is so she can make a smoothie with any vegetables and fruits that we have and i just like a very limited range of things and i just wish that she would write those recipes down so that i could have them more frequently now I got to ask, is there a, a Daryl smoothie? Is there one that's like the one? Yeah. So there was one that she made. It was like beets, pineapple, kale, orange, and I think kiwi. And it was just like the right blend of, of sweetness and tartness for me. And, I, and mm. I've had that one twice and I haven't had it since. I think, in fact, the last time I had it was maybe... 2014 or something like that and i think it's because she probably doesn't remember the recipe and the, the ratios of all the different fruits and everything that's hilarious yeah i love oh, her to death though. I mean, she, is, she is you know truly one of a kind i mean i i honestly would not be here at this point in my education if it wasn't for her um you know when she and i met you know i told her that eventually i wanted to uh earn a phd and go to medical school and she said, well, you know what, as long as you're making progress towards your goal, you know, I'll be right there by your side, you know, helping you to get through. And there were many a night when I was an undergrad, when she was edit- editing papers while I was at work or, you know, helping me to fix my APA. Because I, I started undergrad in 05, not as a very good writer, but she taught me, you know, to be a good writer, you know. Um, and now that I'm a, a PhD student, um, you know, again, it's just the same sort of thing, you know, editing, you know, papers for me and, and you know, helping to keep me motivated and, and, and all these different things. And, you know, one of the one of the reasons why she took the job at AT Still, she said, I want to learn about medical school admissions so that, you know, I can help you with your path to medical school. And so, you know, she's been preparing me for my hopefully upcoming interviews, you know, in a, in a couple of weeks or what have you. And, and I just can't say enough good things about her. She sounds like a, a wonderful partner. Yeah, she is. She's truly hmm. the best. And uh, medical school, let's talk about that for a second here, because mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've seen on Twitter a few posts about, um, you know, uh, about your, your quest to your to medical school. What mm-hmm. is it exactly? Why aren't you satisfied with your nursing PhD? Why medical school now? I, you know, for starters, I am just going to be a lifelong learner. You know, um, mm-hmm. I just love learning stuff. And some people would say, well, you know, you can just go pick up a book and just learn stuff. And that's true. And I certainly have tons of books that I'm learning things out of. But medicine in particular, again, another one of those personal stories. So my my mother, you know, has been a long time drug addict. And I remember uh, when we were when I was a child, you know, she used to do a lot of doctor shopping. And so sometimes she'd wake me up at, at 1130 or 12 or one in the morning or whatever to drive her to a local ER. And sometimes we go to two or three different ERs across the city of Houston before she found a doctor who would give her something. But what I remember was how a lot of the doctors and nurses looked upon her with disdain, right? Um, Instead of stepping back to say, well, what is it that led this person to making these sort of life choices? You know, they would look at her and just, I don't know, maybe make this assumption that, well, you just want to be this way. 
we're sick of you. In fact, she had a, a nickname um, at some of the local ERs in Houston. They used to call her a frequent flyer, you know, and I've seen lots of people treated that way in the course of, of the course of my, uh, uh, you know, career in, in healthcare. And I hope that I can do something to bring that to a stop. Certainly with my patients, I mean, I'm, I'm not under any illusion that I can change all of U.S. healthcare, but, you know, certainly with the people, you know, who I treat, you know, I want to, you know, bring my public health background, uh, my compassion, you know, the, the, the skill that I learned from medical school, you know, into this, into such a way that, that people can come to me with, you know, any problem and feel that I'm treating the person um, as opposed to judging them or, or making these, you know, uh, uh, snap decisions based on something that I see on the outside, if that makes sense. Of course, it absolutely does. Um, is your mom okay now? Unfortunately, no, no. She, um, you know, the, the thing about drug addiction, particularly prescription drugs, those are her drugs of choice. Um, those things are so devilishly hard to beat. And I've, I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, if you have to choose, you know, something to be addicted to, you'd rather whether that be a, a hardcore street drug, because again, the access to the prescription drugs is so readily available. I mean, I can remember, you know, back in the eighties and early nineties when doctors would prescribe my mother, you know, 90 or a hundred Xanax, you know, no medicine should be that easy to get. But then at the same time, we also don't have effective means uh, to treat people, you know, who have drug addictions, uh, particularly with prescription meds, and then there's not enough access to treatment, you know, right. um, to be 100 percent honest, it sometimes amazes me that my mother has made it to this point in her life. You know, she's in her 70s now. And I think that the only reason that she's not as bad as she was in the 80s is simply because she doesn't have the money or the access, you know, that she once had, you know, when she and my father were married, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's difficult because things like pain medication, I mean, they they do work. They do serve a purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Um yeah. and and it's just very difficult. I think I think with all this life experience that you've had, I think you're going to be such a fantastic physician. Do you so. do you want to do primary care or do you want to be a specialist? I want to do primary care. You know, that's where I see the biggest need and certainly the skills and, and different experiences that I've had, I think, would fit most in primary care. Um, mm -hmm. Again, my background in public health, you know, I've worked in case management and social services. And so I, I sort of understand uh, that particular niche of medicine um, better than I would, say, cardiology or something. And then, of course, you know, it's interesting because we always talk about how expensive healthcare in the U.S. is. And I'm like, well, if we just keep people from getting sick, then they don't need to go see the cardiologist or the HIV specialist or, or whatever. You know, if we can if we can intervene early on uh, at the primary care level, you know, maybe we can really do something to uh, drive down the cost of medicine. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, and, and especially right now with the pandemic, I think people are avoiding their doctor's office. They're avoiding right. the routine blood check. They're avoiding talking about sex with their doctors because they think, you know, there's something more serious in the air anyway. Right. Um, so how have you uh, have you been? Uh, it'd be kind of silly not to talk about it. Uh, where it's a pandemic. How how are things going? Man, this has been rough. It's it's mm -hmm. it's been rough, you know. So we, you know, my wife and I love Arizona, but you know, we wanted to move to Texas to be close to my family. Um, 
And so like literally, I mean, like literally two weeks after we move, we, you know, go on lockdown. And so I have not seen my father physically in the month since, gosh, when was the last time I saw my dad? The fact that I can't remember the last time I saw my dad tells yeah. me how long it's been. I haven't seen my mother. Well, I'll take that back. I did see my mother. Um, unfortunately, um, one of my cousins committed suicide uh, shortly after the pandemic began. And so we had a socially distanced uh, funeral memorial service uh, for him in Dallas. And so I got to see my mother. And that's been the only time that I've seen my mother, you know, during this time. And, you know, as hard as it is for me, it's even worse for my wife because all of her relatives are in Detroit. And as you have probably heard, Michigan has been one of the hardest hit states. So, you know, we haven't flown to Michigan to see her people again because of the risk. At the same time, I realize that my wife and I are blessed. Um, both of us are able to continue working when so many people have been laid off and don't have a means to, you know, pay their rent, buy groceries, take care of their children. Um, so that's something that, that I'm really thankful for. And so I know that at some point in time, you know, this is going to end, but man, it, you know, it, it definitely hasn't been an easy year. Right. Are you glad that you're back in Texas though? Um, I have mixed feelings, honestly. I mean, there's, there's things that I have definitely missed about Texas, you know, since I originally left, but I also love Arizona. Um, you know, I was, I moved to Arizona initially in 2004 and then my wife came in 2007 and, you know, we established family and friends out there. You know, uh, one of her cousins, you know, young cousin, uh, Justin, he lives in, in Arizona. You know, a lot of, we got to be really close friends with a lot of our high school classmates and a lot of our, you know, former coworkers at Arizona State University. So like our whole life is there, you know all the formative stuff that happened um, in me and Ebony's relationship happened in Arizona. So it's, it's, it's kind of tough, honestly. Um, you know, we also recognize that with me applying to medical school, you know, I could end up anywhere. So, you know, we're prepared for the fact that, you know, we could go back to Arizona. We could stay here in Texas. It could be Virginia, who knows. But at some point in time, I imagine that we'll probably go back to Arizona and, permanently throw down roots, whether that's, you know, in the next year or four or five years from now, I don't know, but I think that'll happen at some point. Okay. Uh, I did a little bit of research on you. Mm -hmm. So I found, uh, I found your rate my professor page. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I found it. And uh, you have a very high rating and I found that really um, adorable, actually, because uh, your your students appear to have really nice things to say about you. Uh, so I was curious, um, what does it take to be a good teacher? Um, you know, for me personally, part of it is just remembering what it was like when I was sitting on the other side of the desk. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of faculty members are not cognizant of the fact that, especially in this day and age, that, you know, students have multiple responsibilities that maybe they didn't have in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I mean, I've, I've had students who, you know, have three, four, or five children, single parent. Um, I had a student one time who was homeless. He was sleeping in his car over on the ASU campus and couldn't make it to class every day because sometimes he was just so tired and so worn out that, you know, class was the last thing that he thought about. 
Um, there was a period of time when I was an undergrad, when I was homeless, and I can remember my organic chemistry professor, you know, she was wonderful. And I remember her saying, you know, like, Daryl, look, the last thing in the world, you know, that you need to be thinking about is organic chemistry right now, you know, go take care of yourself. And so I think it just starts with, with having that compassion, being able to listen to the students. I think the next thing is, you know, trying to adopt strategies that can reach all of the students. Um, I can remember sitting in general chemistry, God, we had what, five or 600 students, it seemed like. And I don't, in fact, I don't even know if we ever actually got to see our professor. I think it was like a, a graduate teaching assistant or something like that. And, you know, it was just like these PowerPoint slides and you're flying through, you know, 80 or 90 slides, you know, in that hour. And maybe you're able to reach some students that way, but other students, maybe not so much. And so, you know, I've tried different strategies, you know, over the years to make sure that I'm reaching as broad of a cross-section of students, you know, as I possibly can. Um, and then just taking the time to listen to your students. You know, one of the, you know, I've, I've done a lot of online teaching over the years in addition to face-to-face, -face, but, you know, I've always taken time to listen to those students, you know. So, I, in fact, I've, I've got a, a student meeting after a, our, our podcast is over. You know, he and I are going to jump on Zoom, and, you know, he's very interested in understanding how he can use his public health background with the training that he's getting in dental school. And so, you know, we've got an hour set aside, and I'll, you know, talk to him about everything I know. And I think that, I think that if you just really sort of humanize yourself as a professor, then you'll reach your students, and the outcomes are going to be better. I don't have any scientific background or or, or any scientific data to prove that, but I guess if, if my ratings on Rate My Professor are good, <laughs> I guess that's proof <laughs> in the pudding. Um, Daryl, if a 17-year-old young man who is a, a lot like who you were when you were 17 came up to you today and said, how do I become like you? What would you tell him? I would tell him, first of all, don't try to be like me. Be whatever it is that you are meant to be. And understand that the path to discovering that may not necessarily be a straight path, but it can be a very fun path, a very rewarding path um, to to go through whatever it is you have to go through to figure it out. Um, that being said, I think there are a few things that we all should do to get to wherever it is that we're trying to go, right? I think that we all need to have uh, some expectation that Things aren't going to just be given to us. We're going to have to work for whatever it is that we want. Um, some of us may have to work a little harder than others, but we all need to be prepared to work. Um, I think that you also have to treat yourself with loving kindness. You know, you're going to have times where you fail at something. You'll have times where you may fail at something multiple times. I took organic chemistry three separate times before I passed it. But every time I failed it, I got up, dusted myself off, took it again. Right. So you, you sort of have to have a spirit of, how would I say, I'm not going to quit, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, be very open-minded to whatever life is trying to show you. Be open-minded to, you know, the people who are trying to come into your life. Well, I would say that with, with reason. Some people aren't meant to be a part of your life. Some people aren't meant to be a part of your life for a long time. Some people are meant to be a part of your life forever. Um, but you just have to sort of be open-minded, you know, to those those different people in those different situations, I would say. Um, and then certainly if you can find someone who is going to be a good mentor, somebody that will listen to you, 
um, that also helps as well. But I would I would never want to tell somebody to, to strive to be like me, you know, be who you are meant to be, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I am. Uh, I'm now wondering, mm-hmm. have you ever thought about writing a book about your life or, you know, doing a documentary or anything like that? Uh, you know, my wife says that I should. I don't think I'm that damn important, but <laughs> maybe, I mean, maybe, you know, you, you never know. You never, you never know. Uh, certainly, you know, I, I mentor a lot of students now and, you know, I'm flattered, you know, by, you know, some of their, their compliments and so forth. And a lot of them have said, well, you know, you, you've really helped me to change my life in different ways. And maybe you should put all this stuff into a book. So you never know, you know, if I ever, you know, get a little free time, you know, maybe that'll be my next project. You'll be so busy with your patience. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, listen, it's been, I mean, it's been fantastic getting to know you, um, getting to speak with you. I think you are a beautiful human being. It's really been an honor, Daryl. So thank you so much for saying yes, first of all, and uh, for, you know, just um, for being vulnerable enough and sharing with us your passions and your interests and uh, and your and your past. Well, I thank you for having me on. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise. Mm-hmm.